this morning we're kicking off our what we call our Emmanuel series. It's one of the long-running traditions we have as a church. It's one of my favorite times of the year. So if you've been here for Christmas's past, then you know a little bit of how this works. But we uh, take the months of December and invite people from the congregation to share. And I give them, if you've done this before, you know the, the very simple prompt of Emmanuel means God with us. And so we invite them to give word or testimony to how God has proven himself to be with them throughout perhaps a moment in their life or their coming to faith. And we've heard such powerful testimonies from people in the past. I think one of the great parts of this tradition is it allows us an opportunity to get to know one another. Uh, let's be honest, you hear me speak a lot from this pulpit. So how nice it is to be able to hear from one another, to hear what God has been doing in one another's life. And there's been so many great opportunities to get to know each other better in Christmas's past. And so I'm excited for that opportunity again this year. But I did want to take a moment. I am standing here, so I have to read a passage of Scripture and say something. Uh, to at least read those familiar words from Isaiah chapter 7, in which we're reminded this idea of God being with us. A great story in which God came down to King Ahaz. And we read in Isaiah chapter 7, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord said to him, in other words, Ahaz has refused to ask for this great sign that God has given him the invitation to. And so the Lord said, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. God will give him a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That great prophecy from Isaiah is a prediction. This encouragement, this sign, this sense of hope that God was trying to work within Ahaz, God gives by saying, if you want a sign of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, the hope that you have in me as your God, that sign shall be that one day I will be with you, born of a virgin, God himself with us in flesh. And so it is we understand it as that great Christmas prophecy, that hope that we have. That God would reveal himself, not only in his word, these prophecies of the Old Testament, but that God would reveal himself to be with us in the birth of Christ. And for those who have followed him, this sense by his spirit and by Christ's presence, that God still is with us, that source of hope that we have in all things. And so over the next few weeks, that's what we'll hear. Testimonies, words of how God has done just as he prophesied and promised. Come with us in the flesh, but even still by his spirit, and by his leading of believers today, how he's proven to be with us. Well, today's speaker is David Roush. If you know David and been around him, you certainly know he is a person of clarity and conviction. One of my favorite things is the emails or the conversations that David and I will have after services. He's a student of scripture, but also history and always has interesting observations. Uh, David actually grew up as a missionary's kid in Columbia, so he brings an interesting perspective growing up outside of the U.S. Went to Central Bible College as a graduate, and today works at the, I always want to say the Assemblies of God headquarters. It's the National Leadership and Resource Center, is that what we're calling it, right? Uh, but it uh, really just does great work for the Assemblies of God as a movement, and it's been such a blessing to have in our church. It's somebody I always enjoy having conversations with, so I have no doubt in my mind he's prepared not only his heart and his mind, um, but is here to give us a word from the Lord as well, too. So would you help me welcome David as he comes this morning? It's always different from this angle. 
nervous. I am. <laughs> You'll bear with me. So, about half of what I was going to say, Pastor Chase already told you, so <laughs> we're going to do a little review. I'll give you the cliff notes on kind of how I ended up here, and then we will proceed from there. And as Pastor Chase mentioned, my folks are missionaries in Colombia, not Colombia, Colombia, not South Carolina, South America, <laughs> which is neither here nor there. But they got there in 1971. They went there with the intention of teaching in the Bible school. Well, when you get to the mission field, you've been to language school, you have approximately a second grade level of vocabulary. And so that didn't quite work out. And so they moved to a city called Betamayo. Have fun saying that five times fast. And about six years, one day later, I showed up, and their lives will never be the same. <laughs> I'll let you take that however you want. So they worked in Caravaggio for about 15, 16 years, uh, helped start about 15 or so churches, and then moved up to Bayoubad, which is up on the northern end of Colombia. There until about the mid-90s, and due to some political changes, the way that they've had a long history of dealing with communist insurgents, that kind of thing. And the government changed how they were dealing with them. And so we had to leave fairly suddenly. About the same time, my sister was diagnosed with a learning disability. And so it was decided that it would be better for us to be home so that she could get proper care. So we came home. Dad did a, a tour of duty at Southern Arizona Bible College, if you've ever heard of that little tiny college in way like three miles as the crow flies from Mexico. Did that for a year, then we moved up to Trinity, if that's not a contrast, in North Dakota. He did a mission in residence there for a year, and then they got clearance to go back to Colombia. Well, that was my junior year in high school. And the trick with that is I was born in Colombia, and that makes me a citizen of Colombia. So if I go back, I can be drafted. And it's one of those that you either volunteer or they can draft you in by drafting and set up random checkpoints when you're not expecting it. And if you don't have your papers, congratulations, you get to be in the Army, and your family gets to find out two months later when you get done the boot camp. And so my parents didn't want that for me, and so I stayed back. Fortunately, one of my friends that lived there, next to Trinity, his name is Mark, he, he and his family took me in so that I could stay there, finished out high school, and then I did my freshman year there at Trinity Bible College. So after that freshman year, my friend's parents decided to move, so they went back to Colorado, and I transferred to RBC, uh, which is in this city. You might have heard of it, Springfield. <laughs> So I went to CBC. I graduated in 2001 with a degree in pre-seminary, which is funny because I never got to seminary. <laughs> so, judge me if you like. Um, after that, I started working for Resource and Development Ministries, which is part of World Missions. Did that for about five years, and then I moved over to the national office where I worked for the publishing division for you know, since then. So. We can backtrack a little bit back in about 2013. A friend of mine, his name is Mike Gonzalez. He's a CBC friend of mine. 
Two of the churches in the area asked him to plant a church in Rogersville. So he asked me to go out there and help him with that. So uh, we've been friends for a long time, so that just seemed like a logical choice. So I went with him, and I served there for about eight years as a, just a lay leader there. And in 2021, that church ended up closing. Nothing bad, it just couldn't get any traction. So we closed it down, and he and his family moved up to St. Louis, where they currently pastor Berea Temple and National Church. And then I stayed here mostly because my folks are here and they're older, retired, and so I just need to be close to home. That was fall of 2021. I kind of hopped around from church to church for a little while. And last year in August, I ended up here. Mostly because of a series that Pastor Chase was doing at Central Assembly where he was covering the book that he's written, which I recommend, by the way. So that kind of brings it up to speed, and that's how I ended up here. So, if you know me at all, you know that I'm not exactly an extrovert. <laughs> I just assume me on the back row, listening, and kind of staying out of the way, and just being ignored. I'm perfectly happy doing that. So, it, whenever I have to make a large change, like going to a, a new church, it's just one of those things I don't like to do because I'm introverted. And so it just always, it's, it's stressful for me. But the first Sunday that I came in to church here, it just so happened that Linda was here. <laughs> and Linda and I go back quite a while. We used to work at the publishing division at the reporters there for a number of years. I hadn't seen her for, I don't know, five years or so. And so honestly, I didn't recognize her. I recognized the voice, but I didn't recognize her. But we chit-chatted and got caught up, and so it was just a point of connection. I sat on the back row, of course, and right in front of me was uh, Jack and Cindy. Yes. And they looked awfully familiar, but I couldn't quite place them. Now, it turned out, it just so happened that they had attended a church where my friend Mike had pastored in Willard, a number of years ago, and so there was yet another connection. So when I'm looking for a church, typically the preaching is what does it for me. And that's, you could say that I'm kind of a sucker for expository preaching, which Pastor Chase definitely has in the bag, so we won't even go there. But having those connections to Linda and to Jack and Cindy just kind of helped settle me in to be able to be comfortable. Well, to be honest, when Pastor Chase asked me to do this, I was a little apprehensive, if you want to put it that way. Public speaking really isn't the issue. I can do that. I went to Bible college. It's kind of part of, you know, comes with the territory. But my faith journey in terms of the story to tell really is kind of boring. And I grew up in church. My parents are missionaries. Went to church every Sunday. We were in church. We you know, did Sunday school. We did BBS. We did all of the things. I went to CBC and you know, got my degree. And that, that was just normal. And so a lot of times, if you've been in church all of your life, you know that it just doesn't seem like there's much of a story to tell. It's just, 
just didn't think I really had anything to say, to be honest. And so in order to actually have something to say and make this longer than five minutes, I thought I'd tell you a couple or three different stories of things that have happened throughout my life. First of all, we're going to go to a city in Colombia called Bayuba. It's on the northern end of Colombia, just off of the desert. If you want to think of the climate, it's something like Las Vegas. It's hot and dry, you know, a balmy 100 degrees or so every day, which is kind of a contrast to the water supply from the city. Just up to the north there is the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. It's a snow-capped mountain where they get their water for the city, which is coldest, best water we ever had out of the town anywhere that we've lived. So it's just kind of an odd contrast that in such an arid environment you would have really good water. While we were there, a lot of the, some of the churches in the area decided to have a retreat for the youth. And I was in my early teens, so I went. The retreat was in a farm just outside the city, and there's a working farm, so they had kind of like a barracks-style dormitory in the kitchen and the pavilion and that kind of thing and a soccer field out in the back. And in the afternoons, when you don't have anything specific to do, you can just, you know, as it is with you, retreats, you kind of roam around and do whatever. So we're sitting around chit-chatting, and in the back of the soccer field, there's a, a wood line, and this group of young men come out of the wood line. And they're in sneakers, t-shirts, that kind of thing. And they asked to use the soccer field. Well, no reason not to. And so they go and they play soccer and I did whatever I was doing. It, it was so innocuous that it never registered in my mind as anything but some guys wanting to play soccer. They did their thing, played for a while, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, whatever, and they left. They didn't even register. Then we finished up the retreat, went back to town, didn't even think anything else about it. That's not the end of the story, but we're going to put a pin there and we'll come back to it. So if you're type A, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll get back to it. So, Pastor Barry's probably going to take the cleaners for this one. We're going to take a little trip back in history to 1776. <laughs> You're familiar with the Revolutionary War. In about the end of August of that year, the Continental Army was just getting their backside from the tomb. There's no other way to put it. They got pushed back to the edge of Brooklyn, and they've got nowhere to go. They've got the East River behind them and the British Army in front of them. They're outnumbered three to one, nowhere to go. So George Washington, with nothing else that he can do, decides to order a retreat. Well, retreating from Brooklyn is not easy. You've got the East River, it's got swift currents. You've got uh, the wind coming from the Northeast, which is keeping the British Navy at bay in the harbor. But it also means that you can't do anything with boats to get your troops out of the way. And so they go ahead and set up the retreat and just wait. There's nothing else they can do. About 11 o'clock that night, on August 29th, if I recall correctly, that wind that was keeping the British Navy at bay stops. 
one of the men that was there that day writes that it was almost as if by design. It just stopped. Which meant that they could start bringing boats over. It calmed down the tides, so they just start bringing boats. They under cover of darkness, they start ferrying people back and forth from Brooklyn over to the New York side, what today would be Manhattan, all night long under the cover of darkness, in complete silence. For those of you that have been in the military, you know that a tactical retreat is hard to do under good circumstances, let alone at night in on a river that's a mile wide. But nonetheless, as if by design, they start ferrying people across. Some of the boats made as many as 11 trips back across, back and forth across the East River. When it was just about sunup, they still had a couple thousand people left to get off of Brooklyn. And so they're running out of daylight, and they know as soon as it, the sun pops up over the horizon, the British Navy's in the harbor, and they're going to make mincemeat out of anything that's on the river. But it just so happened that a fog settled in over Brooklyn. Not in New York, in Brooklyn. And it was so dense that one of the people that was there wrote that you could hardly see somebody in front of them at six feet. It was just that thick. And so that gave them cover to keep moving people. So they kept going. They finally got the last of the troops over on the New York side just after 7 in the morning. And about an hour later, the fog lifted. And the British were on the Brooklyn side looking through the encampment that they had just left. It's one of those one in a million shouldn't have happened yet. It did. From there, we're going to go, the, uh, just for reference, they had 9,000 troops, which they evacuated over the East River. They didn't lose a single soldier in that evacuation. And of course, the British were probably pretty surprised. So, well, that's one story. And you'll see the theme that's going to come through here in a little bit. Fast forward to the late 80s, early 90s. My dad, while we were in Vaguepa, the city that we mentioned earlier, he was, he would go, he did church planning, and so he did a lot of visiting in different churches in the area. And one of the cities he was going to go visit is Magangye. I'll let you look that up later. But it's a city just on, on, the, on the river. It's Magdalena River. It's the equivalent of the Mississippi for us. It's a large river. About the best way to get there was to go by boat. In Spanish, we call it a launch. It's a, basically an oversized canoe with an outboard motor. So wasn't particularly thrilled about going by boat on the river, but that's how to get there, and so that's what we did. About mid-afternoon, they weren't sure if they were going to be able to take the boat if they didn't have enough people. And out of the blue, these guys showed up and just that they wanted to take the boat, and so since they had enough people, they went ahead and left. On the way there, one of these men that had gotten on late asked the guy that was driving the boat, oh, do you mind if we 
kind of take a detour over here and we need to drop off some supplies or whatever. Okay, I mean, I don't know where that is, but if you show me, we'll go there. So, sure enough, they took their little detour, and mind you, this is a literal backwater. If you think of the movie Deliverance, you know, the banjos just started playing. <laughs> Back in the backwater. They get to their drop-off point, and these men get out of the boat, and they say, don't go anywhere, we'll be back. I don't know what they went to do, but they left. They were gone for several hours. While they're gone, one of the other passengers, the lady, leans over to my dad and says, you do know who they are, don't you? He's like, well, I think I do. So those are guerrilleros. They're communist insurgents. So I'll let you guess what they were doing. I, I don't know to this day. They go and do their errand, whatever that it was. They come back and get in the boat. By this time, it's dark. I mean, you're on, on the backside of nowhere, no street lights, no nothing. And the guy running the boat's like, I, I don't know how to get out of here. And so they stay in and say, well, we know the area. So they literally guided them out of this backwater in pitch black so that they could get back out onto the river and to their destination. So you know, it's one of those, you get there and kind of breathe a sigh of relief sort of thing. But that's not all the story. A couple of years later, my dad was back here in the States and he was itinerating. And he's, I forget the name of the church that he was at, but one of the ladies in the church asked if he could speak with, with her after the service. Like, sure, whatever. So he was in conversation with this lady and she asked him, do you remember this day and this time? Do you know what you were doing then? Well, I don't know. So he started thinking about it. And it turns out that that time, at that day and that time, my dad was on that river in the backside of nowhere about this close to being kidnapped. And God had placed his name. She had never met him, but he put his name, which my dad's name is not common, it's Theron. So, you know, for that name to just pop into your head is... One of those one in a million things. So she was obedient, got up, and prayed for him so that he could ultimately come home. He didn't know it. That was 2,000 miles away, but it just so happened that God had somebody in another country praying for him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So we'll go back to that first story that we didn't finish. After that youth retreat, I went home, didn't think about it. It was nothing out of the ordinary for me. Fast forward 20 years, and I'm living here in Springfield. And a missionary friend of ours asked me to come do some menial stuff around her house. If you've ever met her, you would know her. Uh, Myrna Sue Wilkins. That's the Cambridge that who she is. She's a longtime missionary to Colombia and Venezuela. Single lady, wonderful lady, definitely a talker. She can tell you stories for hours on end. It's just her personality. I'm over at her apartment just putting up a picture of whatever it was that we were doing. 
And she says, remember that youth retreat that you were at? I said, well, what, what do you mean? He says, you know, thus and such, and explained it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. She's like, did they ever tell you what really happened? I'm like, no. <laughs> and she said, well, the part that they didn't tell you, the proverbial rest of the story, is that those men that came out of the wood line weren't just locals wanting to play a game of soccer. They were Gavillitos, those insurgents we were talking about. They had come out of the woodline because they saw that I was there. First being blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white kid, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And their intention was to kidnap me, which they didn't. I don't know why. I don't know if they didn't want that number of witnesses. I don't know if they didn't want the people to fight them off. I don't know if they saw some angelic being that nobody else saw. I don't know. I still don't know. But they didn't do it. It just so happened that it took 20 years for me to find out what didn't happen. I can tell you what would have happened if they had taken me. Because I was in no better shape then than I am now. (laughs) And so having them drag me through the woods and who knows what else, running from the Colombian army probably wouldn't have been a good thing. Not to mention that the Assembly of the Government Missions has a standing policy to not pay ransom. <laughs> so, lacking financial recompense for the kidnapping, they probably would have just done away with me and left me in a ditch somewhere. But it just so happened that they didn't take me. Let's go to Scripture. In the book of Esther, which I found particularly interesting in this context. If you've listened to Pastor Chase's podcast that he does with the kids, the Let's Stop Bible, there's a little piece in there where they say, I think it's part of the intro, it says the Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little Aramaic. Well, Esther is the little bit of Aramaic. God is not overtly mentioned in the book of Esther. When we read in that book, we encounter Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's uncle. Well, they're in uh, Babylon, I forget exactly. The queen did something, and she gets the boot, and so they start rounding up the nice-looking women of the area, and one of them happens to be Esther. And so she gets inducted into this, basically a Miss Universe pageant, if you will, but for keeps. And she gets selected to be the queen. And so while she's kind of going through that process, Mordecai's trying to be a good uncle and keep track of her. And so he's in the palace courtyard. And he just so happened to be at the right time and at the right place to overhear an assassination attempt on the king. So he gets word to Esther. She tells the king. They stop it in he gets written into the annals of the kings. Well, that little incident ends up sparking another incident with Naaman, or not Naaman. I forget my apologies. Yes, thank you. So they end up stopping this, and then he uses this as, a, as an excuse to basically take out, uh, today you would call it an antifada, 
paint job, basically, on all of the Jews in the land. In order to stop this, Esther has to go before the king. Well, she's kind of nervous about this, and I can't blame her. I mean, showing up unannounced in front of the king is potentially a death threat. If he is in a bad mood that day, you're done. And so she's obviously nervous about it. And Mordecai, in the fourth chapter, 14th verse, he says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It just so happened that God had placed Esther in that place in order to effectuate the deliverance of God's people. And of course he did. Because God is with us. God was with Esther and Mordecai. He was with John George Washington and his men. He was with God, with my dad on that river. He was with me at that retreat. Because after all, he is Amen. He is God with us. Thinking as uh, David was talking, particularly in the beginning, how easy it is for those of us who maybe grew up in a Christian home or who have served the Lord for a number of years to start to feel like you don't have a big dramatic testimony to tell. But one of the things I think is um, that's always most meaningful about, particularly for those of you who I think have spoken in years past, would have attested this, the intentionality to sit down and actually begin to think, how has God showed himself to you with me through the years? What an incredible opportunity speaking is to just reflect on your own life and begin to sense all of the ways that though they may not show up in dramatic conversion stories or dramatic miracles, the more time you spend thinking about it, the more of these stories begin to emerge from your own life of how God has shown himself to be with you in unexpected moments and faithful ways. Um, perhaps this season in which we reflect on Emmanuel as I think we've heard so well this morning, is an opportunity not just to know how that's happened to others in this congregation, although those are powerful stories, but maybe to pique your own interest. Uh, if you would say, well, I really don't have a dramatic testimony to share if I ever got tapped to speak, then maybe this is a season for you to reflect in your own way on how God has shown up and been faithful in your own life. What are those stories, those moments? And by those moments, remember that passage we read from Isaiah, that this was a sign, God with us, Emmanuel, that he had given to his people to bring hope in the midst of their current situation. That these stories or words of God's faithfulness in time past, the way he's been present throughout our life, are meant to give for us a word of witness, a hope for how he will continue to be with us in times to come. That when we face darkness or uncertainty, when we find ourselves in hopeless situations, we look back and count all of the ways God has been faithful and it builds our faith. We encourage one another, spur one another on to faith. That God is faithful and will be faithful. And, um, say a word about David as well, too. I think, David, part of your testimony I hear so clearly for those who have grown up in the church, I find this to be more and more true and have continued to serve and be faithful to it, how rare that is today, a life that can be lived in a long, faithful obedience to God. Is that not a powerful testimony in itself, and one that I desperately want to be true of me as well, too? So thank you, David, for not only sharing those stories, but also just living a lifestyle example of what it looks like to just be faithful to God, faithful to his church, faithful to the work that he puts in front of us. 
Uh, maybe we can make that our prayer in worship, as we always do, but maybe our prayer could be today. Uh, help us to carve out time of reflection this season, to remember how God has been faithful to us in the past. God, help us that he pours out on this faithfulness and sort of we move on to the next day imagining, well, I didn't get what I wanted today. <laughs> I don't have what I need today. But instead, this curiosity that looks back and recognizes how faithful God has been, and that out of that discipline, God would just build our hope. He would just build in us a gratitude and a hope for what God still has before us. Can we make that our prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for David's word to us this morning about how you have been with him, how you've been with his family, how you've been with followers of you throughout generations before in scripture and history. And God, we pray that by those stories, you might just remind each of us the ways that you've been faithful. God, even as I listened this morning, I was thinking of those stories that so often I forget in my own life, how you did show up and how you persevered with me. And God, even situations still ahead of us, as David shared, that we may not know for years how you were at work, working and protecting and guiding. But God, we pray by your spirit, you would just give us a sense again of how you are with us in so many ways, big and small and past and present, and certainly by your faithfulness in days still to come. And that by it, Lord, you would just give us a sense of optimism and hope, a sense of peace in our own souls that we can trust you, even in these moments of uncertainty or fears or anxieties, that our hope is not just on what we can do or how our situation might change, but God, our hope is in your faithfulness the way that you have been faithful before, and the way that you are faithful now, and the ways that we know still ahead of us in which you will be faithful again. And so we take hope this morning, and we trust you, and we worship you as a sign of that faith that we have in all things, that you are our hope, our strength, our joy, our endurance for all eternity. We worship you again this morning. Jesus, it's in your name.